I want you to do something for me before I begin. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to start imagining something. Who knows that imagination is good for the soul. Now, I want you to imagine that you're part of a royal family. You're actually doing really well. In fact, just make yourself comfortable. Wriggle around in your seat. You know, you're, you're a part of the elite. You're, you're the ruling elite, so you need to be comfortable. And life is good. Let me tell you, you can have all you could eat and drink. You have a responsibility over lots of people. Your life is looking pretty good. But suddenly, some guy from a kingdom far, far away with an unpronounceable name has come and sacked your city. He's come with his soldiers. He's burnt the place down. He's captured the ruling elite, which means you. He's put them in chains. Suddenly, your seat is not so comfortable. You're sitting on a wooden bench with your ankles and your wrists bound in iron chains and you're chained to all the other people that you know in government and in the ruling class. Suddenly, you're all shoved into a wagon with no windows. It's dark. It's clanking. It has no suspension. And for two weeks, you're dragged along in this thing, bouncing and bumping against your neighbours, hands and feet chafing against iron chains. Are you feeling a bit less comfortable? You're being fed great uh, water and really good dry bread. And you're hungry and you're tired and you're frightened. And suddenly, two weeks later, the doors open and you're herded out into a courtyard. It is a place you do not recognise, surrounded by people who speak a language you do not speak. They dress funny. They have different customs to you. And guess what? They order you to do. They order you to learn their language. They order you to dress like them. They order you to follow their customs. And the worst thing of all is they force you to get a job in their government because you're, you're good at that sort of thing. You were the ruling elite where you came from, so they're going to use your skills. And so you've found yourself a stranger in a strange land. When I count to three, you can wake up now. <laughs> now, the reason I ask you to do that, because I want you to get into the mood of what the book of Daniel talks about. Because this is exactly the scenario that Daniel and his friends have found themselves in. They are part of the ruling elite in Jerusalem, and they have been captured by the kingdom of Babylon, by that strange king Nebuchadnezzar, and brought to his court. And as captives, they have been called to be part of the Babylonian government system. And so what we're going to look at over the next few weeks is this whole idea of how to be faithful to a God whose presence is not felt in the world around you at all. It's very much like, has anybody ever swum in a river? Anybody swum in the Murray? Not that that's a safe thing to do necessarily. But who knows that if you look at a small river, you can tell what's a river do? It flows. And if you look at a small one, you can often see that it flows really fast. But sometimes if you look at, at the Murray, it can be quite wide in, uh, in places. And it looks as though nothing's happening. 
But if you pick a spot on the shore and you start to swim, if you get about halfway and look back, suddenly you discover your starting point is way over there because the current doesn't look as though it's doing anything, but it's gradually carrying you downstream. And so if you want to get back to the point where you were, what do you have to do? You have to swim against the current. And, and if, you've, if you've been to state swim and you've done your swimming lessons, shameless plug there, um, my sister will love me for that. Um, <laughs> if you've done your swimming lessons and you're relatively fit, guess what? You can probably get back to that point. And if you keep swimming, you can probably maintain that position against the current. But guess what happens? You get tired. Your body gives out. And so what's the natural reaction? Ah, pfft, let's lie on, lie on my back. Don't fight the current. And just go with the river. How much effort does that take? Zero. Good place to be. I remember a friend of mine who once said his, his, uh, his version of exercise was to take a bath and pull the plug and fight the current. <laughs> <laughs> and so that, that sort of imagery of, of, of what it takes to actually fight a, a dominant culture that you are in is, is exactly the same thing. We are called to swim against the current. We are called to have faith against the flow. And this is the scenario and this is the story of the book of Daniel. Uh, we've got four people, uh, uh, the main characters in the book of, book of Daniel. There's uh, Daniel, there's Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. Who's heard of them? A few people. Who's heard of Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego? The same people. The interesting thing is, and of course, we call, it's the book of Daniel, but Daniel's name was actually Belteshazzar. Good boy's name in case you're uh, still looking. <laughs> if you had triplets, Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego might be an option. But So, so we've got the, the book of Daniel is following these four people. And... It's actually about their struggle to maintain faithfulness to their God in the midst of this new and foreign land, especially as they're actually called to serve the government. They are called to rule this land. And it's interesting, they're given Babylonian names. And they take Babylonian names. It's not like they say, oh, pff, you can call us whatever you like, but we're not taking that. They take names. They dress like Babylonians. They learn the Babylonian language. They are faithful to the Babylonian king and they work in the civil service. What could be worse? They take government jobs. The most hated thing you would do if you were captured by a foreign government. And so the book of Daniel explores all of these tensions. And it's important to us, I think, because we've got to think, you know, what does it take to stay faithful to God in a new and foreign culture where everything is working against you. The currents and the pressures are pushing you to compromise and abandon your faith and commitment to God. Aren't you glad we don't live in a world like that? It's not too much different, is it? And so I think there's a, there's a, there's a, lot, of, there's a lot of the book of Daniel that we can take some very good lessons from. So, it was a struggle for Daniel. It was a struggle for the early Christian church because the Jesus movement in its early decades was just this minority of people in this huge sea or river, if you like, 
of Roman existence. And the Romans barely recognised that they were there, and when they did, they just slaughtered them. And so you've got to ask the question, is it difficult to follow Jesus? There's a hint. (laughs) And you think about it, if your answer was not an instant yes, then you've got to think, well, am I following Jesus? Because the the thing is, what Jesus asks us, if if we look at... Um, what Jesus has asked us to do, what he calls his people to do at any point in history, at any time, it demands everything of us and it challenges us to our core. The moment that I'm, not co- I'm comfortable with Jesus is the moment I can see that I'm not actually following him very faithfully. Do you see what I mean? It's, it's hard. And if it's not, then... We're not doing it right. And so that's why the book of Daniel is so powerful because it traces the stories of how these young men navigate the knife edge of faithfulness in a culture that has the current going against them. And here's what's interesting about that because I don't know whether you've thought about this, but if you're a religious minority in a country that is overwhelmingly against you, wouldn't it be the sensible thing just to close ranks? Keep things quiet. Just maintain all your traditions Keep things the way they were. Dress the way you used to, but you know, just don't let society in. And maintain what you know to be the right thing to do. And some people may think that way, but it's interesting that Daniel and the rest of the, people, the Israelites in the book didn't do that. Daniel and his friends receive Babylonian names and accept them. They learn to speak Babylonian. They take up Babylonian dress and fashion. And they take government jobs. So they're, they're pretty much sold out. They've, they're, they've given up. You could not tell them from any other Babylonian. You sort of think, what use are they? But the interesting thing comes. But there are points where their faithfulness to God comes to that knife edge. And they have to take a stand. Do I go with the current or do I swim against it? And so... In chapter 2, we go, uh, I've skipped chapter 1, so that's homework for, for this week. Go home, read chapter 1, and then after that, read chapter 2, because I'm not going to be able to read it all here. But it's, it's one of those points where their faithfulness to God is, comes to that crunch time where they've got to swim against the flow. And it's actually a, a vision of hope that generates and empowers Daniel's faithfulness. It keeps him swimming against the current. It's also a really entertaining story, and you should read it, because it, it's, it's weird. Um, so let, well, let's start. Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. It says, One night in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had eaten too much pizza and had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. So he called in the doctor. No, he called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, as you would. And he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. Would you like to have been a magician and charter um, astrologer or sorcerer at that point? Hello, come into my bedroom. What did I just dream? I'm waiting. So they did the normal thing. They, they said, oh, gracious king, may you live forever. I think that is, is the, the, the term, or is it, um, that's in a different translation. They, 
he says, anyway, he says, I have had a dream that deeply troubles me and must know what it means. And so they answered him in Aramaic. Now, I'm not quite sure why the distinction is made there. But they start off, long live the king. So they butter him up first. And then, then they do the obvious thing, tell us the dream and we'll uh, interpret it for you. Fingers crossed, hoping, hoping. But the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. I'm not sure why you'd worry about that once you'd been torn limb from limb. Um, but he was just turning the screws there. He says, but if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I will give you many wonderful gifts and honours. Just tell me the dream and what it means. There you go. Talk your way out of that one. And of course they couldn't. So the king, you've got to think, the king must suspect that his sorcerers, magicians, etc., are frauds. And so this is a good test to say, well, okay, you guys think you're so wise and just so clever. Tell me what I dreamt. Because if you don't, I'm going to kill you all. And so that's what happened. The evidence is backed up and the king is really, really ticked. He is woken up grumpy this morning. Heads are going to roll. And so in verse 12, it says, The king was furious when he heard this and he ordered all the wise men of Babylon to be executed. And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find King Daniel and his friends to kill Daniel. And so you think, well, hang on, that's not fair. Daniel, I mean, we haven't heard him mentioned in the story yet. How come he gets the chop when he wasn't even there? And the, the problem is, of course, that Daniel and his friends have, have been such sellouts to the Babylonians that they have risen so high in government that they are part of his wise men. Nebuchadnezzar consults Daniel and his friends above all others. Chapter 1 tells us they're ten times more useful than any other of his sorcerers, magicians, astrologers and the rest. So unfortunately because of this, when he says everybody who's a wise man gets it, Daniel and his friends are part of that. And so in a nutshell what, what happens uh, is that Daniel gets the death sentence delayed long enough for he and his friends to ask God to reveal the king's dream to him. But let, let's just pause a moment. What's, ha what's happening here? Who's Nebuchadnezzar? Well, he's basically the king of the world. He has dominion over a large chunk of the planet. He wakes up grumpy and you're dead. That's how things work in Babylon. Um, so what we're seeing really here is a corruption of the whole idea of kingship and of kingdoms. Um, to the point where the ruler is so puffed up with his own self-importance that human life becomes insignificant. This, and why this is important is going to become clearer in a moment. And so Daniel manages to get the king to hold off for 24 hours on this killing thing he wants to do. And so he and his friends pray to God and they go to sleep and God reveals the dream to Daniel in a vision during the night. Do you know what Daniel does? He composes a worship song. It's it there, right in there. And right in the middle of all this narrative, suddenly there's this bang, there's this bit of poetry. Daniel is so happy, he wakes up and he, he writes a song and he gets Jordan, he gets Jordan on the keyboard and they sing it together. He is so excited that God has shown him this thing. And he, it is a great worship song. It's a great praise to God. It talks, actually, interestingly enough, as you, as you read it, which you'll do for homework. Um, I'm just making sure you got that bit. Um, about who the, who the true king is. And so he, he gets really excited. Then he says, oh, hang on, I've sung enough. Let's go and see the king. So he races off to see the king. 
And uh, he says, King, I can tell you what your dream was. And uh, so in verse 29, he starts off. He says, while your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. He reveals secrets, has shown you what is, he who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen. And it's not because I'm wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver, the belly and thighs were bronze, the legs were iron, and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut out of a, hang on, I've lost my place, a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver and gold, and then the wind blew them away without a trace like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. And you thought you'd had weird pizza dreams. And so Nebuchadnezzar's standing there, and he hasn't given any indication of whether Daniel's right or not. So you can imagine that's a... <coughs> okay, I'll continue on. In verse 36, he then says, <laughs> that was the dream. Now we will tell the king what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. Buttering him up again. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength and honour. He has made you ruler over all the inhabited world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. Strange but significant. Then the wind blew them all... Uh, hang on. <coughs> you are the head of gold, at which Nebuchadnezzar, of course, puffs up. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise up to take your place. After that kingdom's fallen, yet a third kingdom, represented by bronze, will rise to rule the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush. Notice a lot of smashing and crushing that goes on in this dream. Uh, Previous kingdoms, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw are a combination of iron and baked clay, showing that the kingdom will be divided um, like iron mixed with clay. It will have some of the strength of iron, but while some parts of it will be, will, other parts will be as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage, but they will not hold together just as iron and clay do not mix. During the reign of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true and the meaning is certain. And then he waits. And Nebuchadnezzar waits. And then something really amazing happens. Because uh, do you know what's happened here? Basically, Nebuchadnezzar has been told he's not as big as he thinks he is. But somehow he doesn't see that. This thing about being the head of gold, I think, has perhaps got to him a bit. So 
in verse 46, Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshipped him. And he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. The king said to Daniel, truly your God is the greatest of gods. The Lord over kings are a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. Whew. The king then appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over all his wise men. Not sure whether that was a promotion or not. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon, while Daniel remained in the king's court. What an amazing story. What does it mean? I mean, we could, take, we could, we could stop there. We could have a bit of an early minute and say, well, obviously, we need to go to sleep tonight and pray that God gives us a vision to find out what the mayor of Paynham has been dreaming. <laughs> Nord Paynham St. Peter's, I'm sorry. Old school thinking there. And then we'll be able to advise him on matters of government and we'll get appointed to the council. I think there's too many of us. But I don't think that's what Daniel's trying to tell us. It's actually a vision of hope for Daniel. And you'll think, well, it sounds all a bit destructive. How is it a vision of hope for Daniel? Well, the dream was the king's. And the dream tells the king he's not as big as he thinks he is. But what does it tell Daniel? It tells Daniel that the king that he serves and the kingdom that he's in is not God and it is not the kingdom of God. And that although he has been called by Almighty God to serve Nebuchadnezzar, the message to Daniel is everything that in worldly kingdoms and worldly kings is temporary. That to, for Daniel to put his identity and his meaning into an earthly kingdom is only going to be a temporary solution and temporary solutions are not good things to plant your identity in. So Daniel is given a hope that his, his God, the God of gods, the king of kings, is, who is going to establish a permanent, never-ending kingdom is the person he should put his trust in. And so that gives him the hope to keep swimming upstream. The second thing is, is, is it's interesting because it ties in with the story, the unifying story of the rest of the Bible. Have you noticed what the dream was about? What was in the dream? It was big. A statue. The whole dream is about a statue. Do you know what the, the Hebrew word for statue that's used here is? It's selim. It's, pro it's pronounced with a t. So it's selim. Sorry, in the front row. <laughs> Can you think of any other story in the Bible where images rule the earth. No hints? What page of the Bible? One, funnily enough. The first, thing in the, the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make the human beings in our selim, in our image, to be like us. They will reign over what? The fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth. What did Daniel's interpretation of the dream say about Nebuchadnezzar? He has made you ruler over all the inhabited world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. So there's, there's a message here about human beings, the image bearers of God. 
Because it's, it's interesting. I mean, that verse in Genesis tells us one important thing. The image of God is not something that we have. The image of God is something that we are. And so Nebuchadnezzar is, is an image-bearing human. He, he's, there's nothing wrong with him actually being king, except for the fact that his version of kingship and his kingdom has become an idolatrous exaltation of power and selfishness. Because who's the head of that idol? It's Nebuchadnezzar. A guy who wakes up grumpy and people die. It's the ultimate distortion of human purpose. And so the king is reminded that he may think he's the king of the world, but he's not. And also the kingdom, he's exalted to the status of idolatry, he's coming down. And so that's keeping Daniel's faith alive here. Plus the fact, of course, there's this great picture. Did I mention the fact there seems to be a lot of smashing? In this? That the kingdom of God is coming to smash human kingdoms. Who's ever been wronged by somebody for their faith? Who, who, who would like to punch some people who have, have uh, said rude things about their Christian faith, who have laughed at them, who have told other people that you're crazy because you believe in God? Who would like to take a bit of swift revenge on some of those people? I mean, secretly, of course, you wouldn't, you wouldn't admit to it because that would be sinful. But, I mean, to see images of God smashing people with big rocks, that's, hey, I don't have to do it. I'm pure. God did the smashing. wasn't me. And often we look at this because this contaminates our understanding of our relationship with Jesus. Because who's the rock? Yes, that's the right answer. Jesus. Gosh, you people are really shy this morning. Who's the rock? Yes, right. So this rock, who's this rock representing? Right, you're getting the hang of this. This is good. Okay, so Jesus conquered the world, did he not? Because it says... John 16, 33, I've said this to you so that in me you have, may have peace. In the world you face persecution, but take courage. I have conquered the world. And as soon as he said that, he goes into a garden where he's arrested. Uh, the Roman soldiers take him, he's beaten, flogged, and then executed. That's Jesus conquering the world. Yay, what a rock. Isn't that exciting? But that's where we get messed up. Think about it. When does Jesus become king of the world according to the New Testament? When does he get his crown? He gets a crown when he's being beaten by the Roman soldiers. When does he get a robe? When he's being beaten by the Roman soldiers. He gets a scepter when he's being flogged. And then they put him on a throne. What do we call the throne he's on? The cross. And there on the cross, on his throne, what do they put on the back of it? A big placard that tells everybody, this is the king of the world. And so that's Jesus conquering the world. That's the rock that smashes Human kingdoms. Jesus smashed human kingdoms by letting the human kingdom that he was in smash him. And the, the way that God conquers evil in our world is actually to die and let his resurrection conquer evil. And that's the paradox of Jesus being the smashing rock. It was a paradox then and it's a paradox today. It's hard to believe that Jesus believed he was bringing this smashing rock to its fulfillment by letting him be sm himself be smashed by the kingdoms of this world. I don't know how you feel about that, but that's, that's the Christian story. And, so, and we're going to explore more of that as we go 
through the book of Daniel. It's what faithfulness, what does faithfulness to Jesus look like? Because sometimes we have some really weird views on what that means for us. It doesn't mean we're going to reject the culture of the kingdom we find ourselves in, but neither does it mean that we allow it to define our identity and our value system for us. It's the path of faithfulness to the way of Jesus and his kingdom. As we close, I just want to ask you a question. And this may be just me. But have you, have you, as, a, as a Christian, have you ever read the Bible? That's not the question. I'm assuming that's yes. And you've read about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And you, you've come to a conclusion, much the same as, as I have, that, that Jesus does expect a certain amount from us. And some of them are a bit tricky. I don't know about you, have you ever looked at it and said, yeah, I I love Jesus, but that's not going to happen? No, it's just me. Gosh, I feel lonely now. (laughs) So all of you do everything that Jesus has called us to do as his disciples. I am so proud of you. (laughs) But, I mean, I spent the first three, four years of my Christian walk in fact, I prayed, and I believe God had answered my prayer. I am, I am never going to be a minister. And Vicky's prayer was the same. She said, that I never want him to be a minister either, because I don't want to be a minister's wife. Of course, she got far worse than me. She got to be a minister as well. And that was one of the things, I mean, I could not imagine myself speaking to people about faith in Jesus Christ. It was just one of those things, yeah, I understand that's what we should do, but yeah, I love you, Jesus, but not that much. I know it was sinful. I get it was wrong. (laughs) But have you ever, are are the places that you just feel you cannot go, that you think, I want to be a disciple, I want to be fully committed, but that's just too hard. And, And it could be, it's not necessarily doing stuff, it could be just as simple as Jesus calls us to love our enemies. And sometimes we just go, <laughs> yeah, right, okay. It's okay for Carmen. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's not me. You put me in a room with one of those guys and he's not going to come out looking pretty. And Jesus says, no, no, I've called you to love your enemies. Forgive them. Bless them. What? <laughs> Bless them? Come on, it can't be in the Bible. Ooh, it is. As a disciple of Jesus, we're called to forgive Because Jesus forgave us, and he gives us forgiveness on the condition that we forgive others. And it may be be yourself you have to forgive, not necessarily somebody else. But there's there's a sticking point that as disciples of Jesus, often we hit in in our path of faithfulness. You know, we're swimming upstream fine, and suddenly a log hits us in the face. And we think, ouch, that hurt, I'm going to float for a bit. And we just cruise on down. It's only a little bit. It's only a little bit. Whoa. And suddenly we're miles from where we should be. And who knows that catching up is so hard. That's why we have church. It's so that other people can grab you and help you catch up. But the thing is that on our path of faithfulness, as we've seen here, God had to encourage Daniel and his friends. It's part of that vision. It was encouraging Daniel that not only was the, the ruler that he was serving temporary, but the fact that the kingdom of God was coming, that if he placed his faith in it, it was actually going to reward his faith walk. 
But as we've discovered, it's also not in the way we think. After that. We have to let go of old thinking. And so we need to come to a place, and I, I want you to come to a place this morning. If, if you're in that situation where you can pinpoint, yep, okay, I know I love Jesus, but you've got me there. Um, I really struggle with the, that particular aspect of discipleship. I really struggle to share my faith. I really struggle to read the word. I struggle to forgive. I struggle to be forgiven. I struggle with anger. I struggle with, with loving people. I struggle with isolation. I struggle with sharing. I, there are all sorts of different things that we, we struggle with. God wants to take that. We've, but we've got to let him. Because guess, guess what? You'll never, you'll never overcome that struggle in your strength. We've got to give it to God. Sometimes that takes more strength than anything to say, okay, it's not me, I can't do it. Especially uh, guys my age, because we can do everything. Just give us a spanner and a roll of duct tape. (laughs) But we we have to lay that down and say, no, it's not up to me. It can't be up to me. It's up to the king of the world. So can we just stand? I just want to pray something to take us through. Remember, you've got homework this week. Daniel chapter 1, then read chapter... Don't read chapter 3. We're doing that next week and there's no cheating. A lot of rubbish. Of course you can read chapter 3. You, you want to know what's coming. You want to be able to see what's, what's happening. Chapter 3 is a really great story as well. I won't tell you. It, it, it's the one where you get to know the names. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. It's a town in Victoria, Bendigo. But before we continue, one of the, one of the, I think the biggest struggle that we have with ourselves when it comes to hearing about a walk of faith, a connection with Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God being a kingdom that overcomes the kingdoms of the world, that is there eternal for us, is that for that to have an impact in our life, we've actually got to take on board the kingship of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. And we do that, at least we do it in our church, by giving God an opportunity to come into our lives. So that we actually make a statement, we say, God, I'm, I, I am putting aside and getting rid of everything I have associated with the kingdoms of this world. And I am going to take on membership of your kingdom. And I am going to swear allegiance to you as my king. That's the first step we've got to take before we can even tackle any of this other stuff about forgiveness and, and walking with Jesus. So I want to inv- issue an invitation to you this morning. I'd like, like to pray a prayer with all of us together to actually invite Jesus into our life, to take a, a step to being a member of the kingdom of God, to being a child of God with Jesus as our King. And you may have never done that before. And if that's you, this is a good time to do it. This is a good time to say, okay, I'm prepared to take a step. I'm prepared to put aside my old life and take on something new in the kingdom of God with Jesus as my king. Or you may have done that before and you realize that you may think you're in the kingdom of God, but you realize you've actually become a Babylonian. That you've actually stopped swimming upstream. But God always puts out a rescuing hand. It says, "Come, come back to me. But before we pray that prayer, If that's you this morning, 
And can, before I ask this, can I ask everyone just to close their eyes for a moment? If that's you this morning and you want to take that step of inviting Jesus to be king in your life, before we pray, can I just see who I'm praying for? If that's you, just raise your hand quickly so that I can see it, so that I know who I'm praying for this morning. Is there anyone at all who wants to pray that prayer for the first time or to come back to say, yes, Jesus, you are my king? Awesome. In that case, let me just pray for you. Lord Jesus, first of all, we repent. We lay down our lives afresh. We say sorry for the falsehoods, the lies, the actions that have taken us far from you. We ask you to empower us today towards a greater faithfulness and obedience in the weeks ahead. Jesus, we thank you for this story of revelation in Daniel. We thank you for the wisdom that you've opened up for us. And as you call us to follow you, we recognize that you've called us to love our neighbor, to love our community, and to love our city, to seek the good of the kingdom in which we live. But at the same time, you've called us to swim against its currents. Jesus, each of us, needs great wisdom as to what that means in our life. We want to be faithful to you. Inspire us again with this vision of hope of your eternal kingdom and of the temporary passing nature of the world in which we find ourselves right now. Jesus, we thank you for your promise. And we pray this in your name. Amen.